First Kings chapter 18, 1 to 19. And it came to pass after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, show thyself unto Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. And Elijah went to show himself unto Ahab, and there was a sore famine in Samaria. And Ahab called Obadiah, which was the governor of his house. No, Obadiah feared the Lord greatly, for it was so when Jezebel got off the prophets of the Lord that Obadiah took 100 prophets and hid them by 50 in a cave and fed them with bread and water. And Ahab said unto Obadiah, Go into the land, unto all the fountains of water, and unto all brooks. Peradventure we may find grass to save the horses and mules alive, that we lose not all the beasts. So they divided the land, and between them to pass through it. Ahab went, went one way by himself, and Obadiah went another way by himself. And as Obadiah was in the way, behold, Elijah met him, and he knew him, and fell on his face and said, Art thou that my lord Elijah? And he answered him, I am. Go tell the Lord, behold, Elijah is here. And he said, What have I sinned that thou wouldst deliver thy servant into the hand of Ahab to slay me? As the Lord thy God liveth, there is no nation or kingdom, whither my Lord hath not sent to seek thee. And when they said, He is not here, he is not there, he took an oath of the kingdom and nation that they found thee not. And now thou say, and now thou, thou sayest, Go, tell thy Lord, behold, Elijah is here. And it shall come to pass, as soon as I am gone from thee, that the Spirit of the Lord shall carry thee whither I know not. And so when I come and tell Ahab, and he cannot find thee, he shall slay me. But I, thy servant, fear the Lord from my youth. Was it not told, my Lord, that I did what I did when Jezebel slew the prophets of the Lord? How I hid an hundred men of the Lord, prophets by fifty in a cave, and fed them with bread and water. And now thou sayest, Go, tell thy Lord, behold, Elijah is here, and he shall slay me. And Elijah said, as the Lord of hosts liveth, before whom, I, before whom I stand, I will surely show myself unto him today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. And it came to pass, when Ahab saw Elijah, that Ahab said unto him, Art thou he that troubleth Israel? And he answered, 
I have not troubled Israel, but thou and thy father's house, in that ye have forsaken the commandments of the Lord, and thou hast followed Balaam. Now therefore send, and gather to me all Israel unto Mount Carmel, and the prophets of Baal, four hundred and fifty, and the prophets of the groves, four hundred, which eat at Jezebel's table. Amen. Well, good morning. Uh, it is a pleasure to be here, and thank you for the warm welcome. Uh, we should, this is always good to do, uh, pray before we get into God's word. Let's do that now. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you uh, that we can hold it in our hands, read it in our own language. Uh, and Lord, we pray as we study it this morning that you would speak to us, that Lord, you would have your way in each one of us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we're going to look at an amazing example in prayer, and it's one of the great answered prayers in Scripture which is the one that Elijah prayed on Mount Carmel in 1 Kings 18. Uh, and we'll, uh, we'll get to the rest of the passage that follows on from that in a short while. But first, I want to consider a few things about prayer. You know, first, it's really easy, really easy to forget how wonderful prayer is. Yet, it's such a privilege and a blessing to be able to pray to our God, to seek his will in our lives and to come before him with our needs. And all that is only possible because of what Jesus did by dying in our place on the cross and restoring our relationship with God. D.L. Moody put it like this and said, My dear friends, it is a sweet privilege to pray. It is a sweet privilege to be in touch with heaven, to be in communion with the great God that made heaven and earth. Just think about that. We're able to freely pray to the God who made everything. The God that made you and I. And if you wanted technical support for your phone or perhaps your TV, I think you would be quite shocked if you were able to get through to the person who designed it or the person that made it. But in a spiritual sense, you know, we have a God who made us who designed us, and we're able to go to him with our spiritual needs and our practical needs because he knows us better than we know ourselves. Now, second, prayer is critically important. Uh, We're instructed in 1 Thessalonians 5.17 to pray without ceasing, which is pretty often, right? Charles Spurgeon said this, when asked what is more important, prayer or reading the Bible, I ask, what's more important, breathing in or breathing out? Is that fundamental to our Christian life? Reading our Bibles and and praying are foundational to that relationship that we have with God. And I need not tell you that cutting communication out of your marriage or out of your friendships would do them no good. And the same is true with your relationship with God. Third, let's be honest. Despite how wonderful and how important prayer is, it's easy to neglect it. But we must not. We must work hard at it. R.A. Torrey warned 
and said, some of us let the hurry of our lives crowd prayer out and what a waste of time and energy and nerve force there is by constant worry. One night of prayer will save us from many nights of insomnia. Time spent in prayer is not wasted, but time invested at big interest. J.C. Ryle warned further and said, backsliding generally first begins with neglect of private prayer. Bibles read without prayer, sermons heard without prayer, marriages contracted without prayer, journeys undertaken without prayer, residences chosen without. On that note about sermons being heard without prayer, let me ask you, how many of you prayed ahead of our time of Bible study this morning? Now, I'm not talking about the collective time of prayer that we've already had, but even at home before coming to church this morning. You know, that's a, a challenge, I think, to all of us. I know it is to me. When I go and hear the word taught, do I pray before? Do I pray after? If there's one impact that I, I hope this sermon has on each of us this morning is that we would not neglect prayer. Uh, to do so is going to affect our own lives, our relationship with others, uh, and it will affect the life of this church family, church family I'm part of, of any church. A fourth, another moment of honesty, perhaps for us. We don't always feel like praying, but that doesn't change the fact that we need to pray. Ari Tori also said this on prayer. He said, when we least feel like praying is the time we need most to pray. Many of the most blessed seasons of prayer I've ever known have begun with a feeling of utter deadness and prayerlessness. But in my helplessness and coldness, I have cast myself upon God. If it helps, think of prayer like sleep. They're both necessary and they're both often very neglected by us. We think we can get away with small amounts of both because simply there are other things that need doing. But like a lack of sleep affects your performance at work, it affects your relationships at home, and it affects your energy for other things, so a lack of prayer will affect all that you put your hand to. It will affect your relationship with God. I would say it will affect your relationship with others also, and it will certainly affect your enthusiasm or your zeal for the things of God. As cutting out sleep isn't an option for a healthy lifestyle, so cutting out prayer isn't an option for a healthy spiritual life. Fifth, just as our lifestyle choices affect our quality of sleep, so our daily choices affect our prayer life too. A.W. Tozer was as direct as ever when he said, prayer will become effective when we stop using it as a substitute for obedience. That is, we can't keep praying that God would do something when our lack of obedience is the reason that something isn't happening. Of course, this is scriptural. We read in Psalm 66, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. Once again, prayer is wonderful and it is critically important. But it's easy to neglect and we don't always feel like doing it. Therefore, we should be especially committed to doing it ensuring that we're not using it as a substitute for obedience or for action on our part. So with that said, let's take a look at what happens in 1 Kings chapter 18, where Elijah will pray and we'll see an instant 
answer from the Lord. And this follows on from the, the passage we were reading a moment ago. Uh, so we have the context of what's happening. Um, but maybe as a little bit more background, uh, at this time, King Ahab was ruling in Israel. And in chapter 16 of 1 Kings, we find his character described as Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. So it's clear he was a wicked man. And so in chapter 17, Elijah then proclaimed that there would be a, a drought in the land And during this time, we see that God sustains Elijah, uh, first through ravens bringing him food, and secondly through the provision of a widow, uh, who in turn was provided for by God, uh, and ensured that neither her flour or oil ran out. And that's the same widow who Elijah prayed for her sick son, and he revived. And then in chapter 18 here, we see God instruct Elijah three years into this drought to go and talk with King Ahab. In the first 19 verses that Bob read earlier, we see them meet and Elijah say this. And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, in that you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and have followed the Baals. Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me on Mount Carmel, the 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So this sets the stage for what will happen in the next 20 verses or so, with the location being Mount Carmel, which overlooks the Bay of Haifa uh, in the Mediterranean Sea. And the Bible passage continues, and we read, So Ahab sent for all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together on Mount Carmel. And Elijah came to all the people and said, How long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal... Follow him. But the people answered him not a word. Elijah here challenges the people who were one minute worshipping God and the other minute the false god, Baal. They were double-minded, something that James warns against in his letter. And they didn't answer because they knew they were guilty of what he had accused them of. Verse 22, then Elijah said to the people, I alone am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Therefore, let them give us two bulls and let them choose one bull for themselves, cut it into pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire under it. And I will prepare the other bull, lay it on the wood and put no fire under it. Then you call on the name of your gods and I will call on the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. So all the people asked and said, it is well spoken. So basically everyone's agreeing to this plan, almost a, a contest, if you will. <laughs> we'll see in a moment. It wasn't really a contest, but we read verse 25. Now Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one bull for yourselves and prepare it first, for you are many, and call on the name of your God, but put no fire under it. So they took the bull, which was given them, and they prepared it and called on the name of Baal from morning even until noon, saying, O Baal, hear us. But there was no voice. No one answered. Then they leaped about the altar which they had made. So there's lots of activity, lots of enthusiasm going on here, but no results. And so it was at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he's meditating or he's busy or he's on a journey or perhaps he's sleeping or must be awakened. Essentially, Elijah is saying, well, maybe your God's having a nap. 
Maybe he's gone to the bathroom or he's just too busy to notice you right now. I love the humour. I love the sarcasm in this, but also the seriousness. This is not a man who accepts that there are many views of God or many gods. Rather, this is a man who realises the futility of pursuing or believing in a false god made by hands or imaginations. He's showing how empty and worthless that is in front of all of Israel. And it only gets more futile if we read... So they cried aloud and cut themselves, as was their custom, with knives and lances until the blood gushed out on them. And when midday was past, they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, but there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. People can get so easily caught up in rituals, in routines, in show, in atmosphere, in smoke machines, in incense. Even what looks like sincere commitment, but you have to look at the results. Here it was all empty. No one answered. They were praying to a God they had made up, an imaginary God. Sincerity isn't a measure of truth. Verse 30, we read, Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. So all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. And Elijah took... Twelve stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Israel shall be your name. Then with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench around the altar large enough to hold two seers of seed. And he put wood in order, cut the bull in pieces, and laid it on the wood, and said, Fill four water pots with water, and pour it on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. Then he said, Do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. So all the water ran all around the altar. And he also filled the trench with water. Why did he do this? Well, as one ancient writer notes, some at that time would try and deceive the simple by performing tricks that concealed fire beneath an altar. Only to then open up funnels at the opportune time so as to give the appearance of spontaneous fire. Elijah wants them to be very sure there's no tricks or anything going on here. We read in verse 36, And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that you are the Lord God and that you have turned their hearts back to you again. Just 63 words in English. Only 32 words in Hebrew. And what happens? Well, we read in verse 38, Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust, and it licked up the water that was in the trench. This fire came from the top down rather than the bottom up. It was obviously miraculous. And so unsurprisingly, we then read, Now when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let one of them escape. So they seized them and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and executed them there. What an incredible account. What decisive dealing with those who are leading Israel astray. 
What a clear demonstration of how foolish man-made gods are compared to the God that made man and his hands. And what an example of prayer. Elijah acted according to God's will. He prayed in confidence. He prayed for God's glory. He prayed for the spiritual needs of others and he prayed for big things. And there's a lot that we can learn here. Of course, is isn't the only time that Elijah prayed, but by looking at what he does and doesn't do in prayer should give us cause to think. And indeed, I believe there's at least nine things that we can take away from this account, from this prayer. Now, the first of those is that Elijah was an example in prayer to the people. Now, we should not seek to pray in public to impress people. Jesus explicitly warned against that. But our prayer life should be evident to certain people. It's important as church families that we pray together, just as the early church repeatedly did. Indeed, prayer should be a significant part of the life of any church, and it's actually a great way that we can get to know the hearts of others in each of our churches. In that sense, we can be both an example and an encouragement to each other. For those single or dating, consider the importance of not just praying for the person you meet and may marry, but praying with them too. Of course, they're married couples. You should pray together. That's a habit that needs forming as early as possible, as especially if you have children, it gets harder to add things to your routine as time goes on. And parents, pray with your children. Every night, without fail, either I or my wife will pray with our seven-month-old before bedtime. And we've done so since he was a few months old. And right now, he doesn't understand the words that we're saying. But he will grow up not knowing anything different than finishing the day in prayer. As he gets older, we're going to need to think about a lot of other things too. We're going to need to think about family prayer times. I remember doing that as a younger kid with my parents, and it set a good example to me. However, let's note, it wasn't just that Elijah prayed that was the example. It was also how he prayed and what he prayed to. So let's take a look at those things also. Before Elijah prayed on Mount Carmel, he had already obeyed what God had asked him to do which led to everybody being present there in the first place. And so we should obey God also. As mentioned earlier, prayer is not a substitute for obedience. And sometimes obedience requires action. As one person put it, God is in control, but don't lean on a shovel and pray for a hole. I'll say that again. God is in control, but don't lean on a shovel and pray for a hole. Don't pray for a Christian husband or wife, when you're not honouring God in your life. Don't pray for a godly marriage without aiming to be a godly man or woman. Don't pray that your kids will come to know the Lord as their saviour without ever teaching them or leading them to him. Don't pray for job security and fail to be a good employee and honour God in that way. Waiting for God in prayer doesn't give us an excuse to do nothing. In a similar way, we mustn't do things of our own accord without consulting God and then ask him to bless it. It's frankly arrogant to do that. 
J. Vernon McGee noted this and said, you and I need to be sure that what we're doing is according to the will of God. Don't do something that you want to do and then ask God to bless it. God doesn't move that way. You have to go his route if you want to receive the blessing. We have no right to demand anything of God. We need to act in obedience before we pray and after we pray. When we do that, when we're following his will, when we're keeping his commandments, we can pray with confidence. I like how Sam Albury puts this. He says, prayer is not the flare gun of the desperate or room service for the indulgent. It's the confidence of the adopted. We have the confidence of the adopted. We can go to our heavenly father. Jesus died for you. For you. His death and resurrection, so long as you have accepted him as your saviour, have restored your relationship with God. And so now, he is your heavenly father, and as long as you're not disobeying him, you can go boldly before his throne, as we read in Hebrews chapter 4. It says, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathise with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Elijah was a man who prayed with confidence because he was following God's will. But beyond obeying God's will and praying according, or or yeah, beyond obeying God's will, he prayed according to God's will. But what is that? What, what is God's will? Well, he's given us his word that we might know it. Prayer and Bible study go hand in hand. We should pray that God would speak to us through his word and his word should inform how we pray. We should never pray something that is contrary to the Bible. And where the Bible doesn't expressly say what we should do in a situation, we can pray following Jesus' example, saying, Father, if it is your will, do this. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Another way in which Elijah's prayer in this chapter is an example is that he prays for God's glory. Indeed, we so often focus, don't we, on our own material needs that we forget to praise God. Yet, when we look at the model prayer that is the Lord's Prayer, or what would really be better called the disciples' prayer, it both opens and closes with God's praise. And just one out of 11 lines are to do with our practical need. Think about that. One out of 11 lines of the Lord's Prayer, just one line, is to do with practical need. God is so deserving of our praise that we mustn't forget to praise him in our prayer And pray that things would be done for and work out for his glory, not ours. Indeed, there's no room for pride in prayer because prayer itself shows that we're fully dependent on him. Let's also note then that Elijah prays for others in this prayer. Prays that Israel's hearts would be turned to God. Now, sure, we absolutely should pray for our own needs and for God's direction in our daily lives. But we have great opportunity here 
in a way, praying for others is probably one of the best ways that you can help yourself too. First, with our attitudes. You know, it's pretty hard to be angry at someone that you're praying for. You know, consider here the sin that Israel were committing in worshipping a false god, yet Elijah prayed for them. Second, praying for your husband or wife or your children or your parents or your siblings is something that will bring blessing to your life as well. As will praying for your Christian brothers and sisters, especially those in your church family. And I would add, pray for those who lead and teach you. The Bible commentator Matthew, Matthew Henry wrote this. said, the more earnestly that people pray for their ministers, the more benefit they may expect from their ministry. In the end, praying for others is an act of love. J.C. Ryle went as far to say that if you want to find out how much someone loves you, find out how much they pray for you. But let's turn that on its head. How much do you love others? And how much, therefore, do you pray for them? Next, let's note that Elijah also prays for the spiritual needs of the people. There's many practical needs in our lives. There really are. But I suggest that it's important for us to prioritize spiritual needs over practical ones. It would be better, surely, that the first thing we pray for each day isn't missing cats or new cars or new jobs, but rather that we please him in all that we do that day, that we'd have opportunity to share the gospel, that we'd please him in our attitudes, and that we'd understand more of his word. Where we do pray for the practical let us pray fully yielded to his will, that we would be good stewards of the time and the finances he's given us, that we would be good employees, that he would guide us in our choice of jobs or our choice of friends, that our daily decisions in all things would honour him. Another thing to note about Elijah's prayer is that he prayed just 32 Hebrew words and fire fell from heaven. Long prayers are not necessary. Charles Spurgeon put it so well. He said, short prayers are long enough. There were but three words in a petition that Peter gasped out, but they were sufficient for his purpose. Not length, but strength is desirable. A sense of need is a mighty teacher of brevity. If our prayers had less of the tail feathers of pride and more wing, they would be all the better. There's no need for our prayers to go on after we've finished. Now lastly, when we look at Elijah's prayer, we see that he prayed boldly. Not just in terms of confidence, but in how grand his request was too. He'd rebuilt the altar, prepared the sacrifice, and was praying that God would send down fire from heaven onto this soggy offering. And he did. The fire utterly consumed everything that was there. Again, We must be obedient to God. We must pray within his will. and We must pray for his glory. But when we do, we should perhaps pray more often for bigger things. 
This comment from Milton Jones has been on my mind recently. He said, when we finally understand that God is paying the bill in this restaurant, some of us may wish we'd been a lot more audacious with what we'd asked for in the first place. Any of you that have ever eaten out on company expenses with others may have seen how that works. When you think you're paying out of your own wallet, you look at the cheapest steak, and when you realize that your boss or whoever else in the company is picking up the bill, you go for the nicer steak. You might have a starter as well. When we consider what God has done for us, how much will he do for us? Do we limit what we pray because we think God is somehow limited or that we're only good enough for a small blessing from him? If God was willing to send Jesus to die for you, Will he not bless you with what you ask so long as it's within his will and in his timing? We read in Romans chapter 8. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Elijah is a great example in these things. He's a great example in prayer. But as one song said very well, prayer works when you take the time to pray. That is, we need to actually pray. We can't keep it for special occasions. We must pray, and we must pray often. Individually, collectively, and with each other as we have opportunity. I remember a phrase that my mum noted down for me as a child, which was, seven days without prayer makes one week. Let's not wait until next Sunday to pray anything more than a quick, momentary prayer. As you go home this week, consider Elijah's example in prayer and ask yourself some questions. Are you setting an example in prayer where you should? Are you acting in obedience? Are you praying, therefore, in confidence? Are you praying according to God's will? Are you praying for his glory? Are you praying for others? Are you praying for spiritual needs or just practical things? Are you praying simply And are you praying boldly? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the incredible gift of prayer that you have given us. We thank you for the length that you went to in sending Jesus to die in our place, that we might have a relationship with you where we need not go through a priest or anyone but that we can come direct to you with all of our needs. Lord, help us to prioritize the right things in our prayer. Lord, help us focus more on you, more on others, more on spiritual things rather than our own practical needs. Lord, let us, we pray, bring our practical needs to you, being yielded to your will, that you would have your way and that you would direct our steps. Lord, we pray that... 
our love for prayer would increase, that our love for you would increase. This week we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.